Welcome to episode number five of the Airspace Engineering Podcast, and today we have a very special episode on Concorde. If you enjoy this or any of my previous conversations, then please consider heading over to iTunes to leave a positive review or just spread the word through social media. And by the way, there's a great group on Facebook called Aviation and Airspace Audio and Video Podcasts, which is a really great community and the source of many other exciting podcasts on the internet. So please check that out. Today's episode is sponsored by the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, also known as SAMPI. SAMPI is a global professional society that has been providing educational opportunities on advanced materials for more than 70 years. SAMPI's network of engineers is a key facilitator for the advancement of aerospace engineering by enabling information exchange and synergies between aerospace companies. To find out how SAMPI can help you learn more about advanced materials and processes, visit SAMPI's website at nasampe.org or consider attending the SAMPI 2018 Technical Conference and Expo in Long Beach, California. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Today I'm talking to John Britton. John was the chief engineer of Concorde on the British side of the Enterprise, from 1994 until Concorde's demise in 2003. In this conversation, John and I talk about how he ended up as the chief engineer of Concorde, what engineering feats make Concorde special, why Concorde is no longer flying today, and what he thinks new supersonic companies like Boom Supersonic and Spike Aerospace need to focus on. This interview was recorded at Aerospace Bristol, which is a new aerospace museum located at Filton Airfield in the southwest of the United Kingdom. From the beginnings of powered flight, Filton Airfield was the birthplace of many a flying machine, from airplanes and helicopters to missiles and satellites. Hundreds of thousands of engineers have worked in and around Filton, and today the area's aerospace industry employs over 43,000 people in companies such as Airbus, Rolls-Royce, Thales, GCAN Airspace, BAE Systems, and many more. Airspace Bristol represents the new heart to the area's aerospace heritage, and provides a unique learning experience about the contribution this geographic area has made and continues to make to advances in engineering, technology, and global communications. It all started with Sir George White at the beginning of the 20th century. George White was the company secretary of the Bristol Tramway Company when it was formed in 1874. Initially, he was responsible for the first regulated electric tram service in Britain, but his business interests soon extended to trains, omnibuses, taxicabs, and lorries. During a visit to France in 1909, he met several of the av aviators of the day, including Wilbur Wright. With White's experience of the transport business, he could see the potential of an airplane factory in his home city of Bristol. In February 1910, he, his brother, and his son formed the British and Colonial Airplane Company, later to become the Bristol Airplane Company, and set up a production line in two bus sheds on the outskirts of Bristol and Filton. Within a few months, the factory was building the Bristol biplane, later nicknamed the Bristol box kite, and by the end of the year, box kites were being sent on sales missions to Australia and India. At the time, Henry Coanda, now known for discovering the Coanda effect, was developing both mono and biplanes for the Bristol Airplane Company. By the start of the First World War, the company was a prime supplier of military aircraft around the globe, such as the Scout biplane and the Bristol Fighter, 
arguably the best British fighter of the First World War. After World War I, smaller companies were folded into the Bristol Airplane Company, extending its business to aero engines. Then after World War II, the company diversified to helicopters developing the Sycamore, the first British helicopter to be granted a civil certificate of airworthiness. But in 1956, Bristol Airplane's major operations were split into two companies, Bristol Aircraft and Bristol Aero Engines. Three years later, Bristol Aircraft merged with several other British aircraft companies to form the British Aircraft Corporation that developed Concorde alongside the French company Aerospatiale. Much of the preliminary work on Concorde was conducted at Filton, and this is why the star attraction of the Airspace Bristol Museum is Concorde Alpha Foxtrot, the last Concorde to be built and the last to fly. So it was with this historic backdrop that I spoke to John Britton, the last chief engineer of Concorde. Here's John Britton with a bit more historic insight into Filton Airfield. So Filton started, um, Sir, Sir, Sir George White, as you see, um, saw the tramway centre, which was at the top of Filton Hill, mm -hmm. he saw that as a, he was very interested in aircraft design. Um, well, just generally aircraft at that time, very early days. And in 1910, he acquired the tramway centre and converted it into the Bristol and Colonial Airplane Company. Mm and one of the first aircraft they built was the box kite the which box i think kite, was yeah. was built under license and they, they successfully flew that built a few of them uh, then later on uh it came to around about the first world war time and we built the the biplane that was in 1926. the blenheim which was um a bomber type type 142 1937 just in time for the, for the just before the, war, the yeah. Second World War. And then after the war, uh, we went back to civil projects, and this was the, the Brabazon, the ill-fated, probably ill-conceived, most people would say. It was, it was a, you know, about 747 size, right. but, but a long way earlier than... Um, than the 747. Yeah, I mean, it, it was to compete with the kit like things like the QE2, or, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the Queen Mary or Queen yeah. Elizabeth, Queen whatever, Elizabeth. the great liners. The cruise ships, yeah. Yeah, uh, across, across the Atlantic, Atlantic to yeah. New York. Uh, but this was, you know, had sort of beds and things in there. So, but it was totally impractical and, and a white elephant. A <laughs> white elephant. Yeah, it, it never really got, um, well, it did get off the ground, but I think uh, what, what it did, it resulted in the Bristol Britannia, which was a much scaled down uh, passenger aircraft, normal passenger aircraft, four engine, and that, that was a very successful aircraft. Um, we called it the Whispering Giant. It was really quiet, mm -hmm. and in fact, that was one of the first aircraft I had my flight on. Growing up around this historic site, it is perhaps no wonder that John became interested in flying. But how did he end up as chief engineer of Concorde? John retells the story of his career. I had an uncle that was not in the aerospace business, but he was interested in aerospace. Uh -huh. And every year here at Filton, they had a family's day. And that included an air display. And he brought me up with his children, with my cousins. And we stood at the end of the runway on the A38. And we watched all the aircraft oh, wow. coming and going. Yeah. And... Uh, that was when I was about 10 or 11, I suppose. 
and that got my interest in aircraft. Uh, I went through um, senior school and got uh, five O-levels. And when I was 16, I left in, that's 1963, mm -hmm. I left and I got an apprenticeship, a technician apprenticeship here at Filton. And mm -hmm. uh, so I started that and that was a five-year apprenticeship, which was absolutely excellent. And you went through all the basic training, uh, learning how to file and turn on lathes and milling and welding. So it was a very technical apprenticeship. It yeah. was a fantastic apprenticeship. And we did one week in the basic training workshop and then a week in college doing the theoretical mm -hmm. work. Uh, so I went through that as a technician apprentice and I got um, uh, City and Guild's mechanical technician um, tech certificate at mm -hmm. the end of it after mm -hmm. five years. But I wasn't happy with that qualification. Uh, I went into the design office then. And, and my, who, who was this Bristol Aerospace or which company was this? Yeah, well, uh, the, it, going back a little bit into the history of the site, it was uh, BAC, BAC. Br Bristol Airplane Company. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, sometime after the war, all the, we had loads of aerospace industries in this country. Walker mm -hmm. Sidley, uh, de Havilland, Gloucester, you know, there were loads of them, Vickers. <clears throat> and um, the government encouraged those industries to amalgamate which they did under the uh, banner of uh, British Aircraft Corporation. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it was the British Aircraft Corporation when, when I was doing right. my apprenticeship. Anyway, I went into the design office here and um, I was working uh, on BAC 111s, which were current, this is, um, as I say, about um, late 60s. And... Um, then I was not happy with my qualification, so I saw the design office manager and asked him if I could go back to college, and he agreed. So the company sponsored me. Uh, it, well, I say they sponsored me. I think they gave me a thousand pound towards my books or something <laughs> like that. Uh, so I went then to Bristol Polytechnic, mm -hmm. and I did a higher national diploma in mechanical engineering, which was absolutely brilliant. So that was. Um, I started in, it was a sandwich course, and I started in um, 1970 mm -hmm. and finished in 72. And then in 1972, I got my higher national diploma in mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. And I then came back um, and worked on Concorde. And I worked on Concorde from 1972 until 1978, okay. when the last aircraft went into service mm -hmm. and was delivered. Ted Tolbit, the chief design engineer of the British Aircraft Corporation that designed and built Concorde, then called upon John to work on high-lift systems of the new Airbus A320. Um, he called me back to the design office and said he wanted me to lead the team designing the high-lift systems on the A320. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, Ted, I said, I've never done I don't know anything about slaps. I said, I've never done them, anything on them in my career up to now and he said we didn't have slats on Britannia we didn't have slats on Concorde so you know as much as anybody at Field about slats <laughs> <laughs> so just get back up here to the design office and uh, <clears throat> and uh, start a team up and that's what we did and we designed uh, then um, 
and that, that was the start of about 14 or 15 years' work on Airbus aircraft. We designed the slats, all the high-lift systems, and eventually I ended up in charge of the, the um, what we call the FMDO, Fluid Mechanical Design Office, where we were designing all the flaps, slats, uh, air systems, anti-icing systems, uh, all the fluid and mechanical systems on the Airbus wings. And obviously, we went on to do a flat and sat system on A330, 340, um, then A380. But then in 1994, the Concorde chief engineer and the BAC 111 chief engineer both mm -hmm. retired. And they put the two aircraft together and they advertised them, advertised the chief engineer's job for those two aircraft. Together. Yeah, together. Mm -hmm. And I applied for that job and I got it. So I ended up with 16 very quick aeroplanes mm -hmm. and 100 somewhat slower ones. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> we still had a lot of BAC-111s in service, yeah. uh, main, mainly in the African countries then. So then from 1994 until the aircraft went out of service, till Concorde went out of service mm -hmm. in November 2003, mm -hmm. uh, I was chief engineer for the Airbus, uh, the um, uh, the Filton, the Airbus Filton part of the Concorde, Concorde work share. Of course, one of the thrills of working on Concorde were flights to New York for technical meetings. This is where the great benefit of supersonic flight became apparent. You could fly from London to New York in the morning, do business, and be back in the evening before the pubs closed. You know, when I got home, you know, you say to people, well, you know, oh, where have you been today? Oh, I've been to New York. Oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> no, no, where have you been really? No, no, I've been to New York for a meeting. Oh, right. <laughs> but yeah. this, you see, this was the attraction of the aircraft. Piloting Concorde was also a different experience. The crew did not only consist of a pilot and co-pilot, but there was also a flight engineer on board to monitor all the flight systems. I mean, the modern aircraft are all um, two crew, mm -hmm. just pilot and co-pilot. But obviously computer systems have got a lot more sophisticated. And now, instead of all these analog and digital instruments, you've got CRTs, you know, they've got screens, mm -hmm. computer screens. And, and the, the only information which is displayed on the screens is, the, is what the pilot needs to know at the time. Mm -hmm. And all the rest of it is taken care of by the computer. But on uh, aircraft of, of uh, Concourse Vintage, all had three crew, uh, seven, the 747s had three crew, BC-10s, they, they, they all had three crew. And the, the flight engineer was responsible for monitoring all the systems. So the, the pilot and the co-pilot were nominally involved with flying it, you know, the primary flying controls. And the flight engineer kept his eye on all the systems. One of the main systems that the flight engineer monitored was the fuel balancing control system. An internal pumping system would pump fuel around the aircraft to counteract changes in the center of pressure over the wings during flight. John explains. It's a supersonic aircraft, mm -hmm. obviously. It's got a supersonic wing, which is a, a different shape to a, a subsonic aircraft. Subsonic aircraft wing is a sort of porpoise shape. Mm -hmm. Supersonic wing is a diamond. If you cut it cordwise, you know, which is a line parallel with the center of the fuselage, yep. The actual basic shape of the wing is a diamond shape. Mm -hmm. So it gets, starts off thinner, it goes fatter, and then it goes thin goes again. again. Okay. So it's a diamond shape. And when the aircraft goes supersonic, 
the center of lift, the center of pressure, moves on the wing. What you need to do then is move the fuel um, to compensate, to balance because it out, it's yeah. important to keep the center of gravity in the right place, mm -hmm. obviously. So I guess you could perhaps also do that with some auxiliary lifting surfaces, uh, control surfaces, but then that might add more mass than perhaps pumping the fuel around. No, well, I mean, as soon as, as, soon as you start to, to move, I mean, on, on Concorde also, we've, we've, we don't have uh, ailerons and, right. and um, elevators mm -hmm. like you have on a, an, or flaps, We've got elevons, and the elevons have got a combined function. Uh, but as soon as you start to trim those surfaces out of um, a good aerodynamic shape, you induce drag. Mm -hmm. So you don't you, you want those surfaces all to be as smooth as possible, especially when you go supersonically. Supersonic, yeah. yeah. So you do it by moving the fuel around, and there's a the computer moves the fuel. But, but the engineer, the flight engineer, has got a picture here, and it's done in the shape of the aircraft, showing the position of all the tanks, and it shows the contents of the tanks. And he's got a CAG central gravity meter there as well. Mm -hmm. And so what he can do, he can pump, I mean, the computer normally does it automatically, but if it doesn't, the engineer can manually pump fuel from one tank to another. And the two tanks that we uh, use most for um, central gravity control, and it's tank nine at the front of the aircraft and tank 11 at the rear. So obviously, they've got a big moment arm about, about the center of gravity. Yeah. So you, you don't have to move so much fuel between those two tanks to get... You know, to achieve the so right you're not really gravity. pumping fuel all over the aircraft. You're basically no. just moving it in small distances, but because the moment arm is so long, it makes a big difference in terms yeah. of balancing yeah, yeah. the small, small quantities over the length of the aircraft okay. to, to get the CG in the right place. Mm -hmm. The design flying speed of Concorde was limited to Mach 2, twice the speed of sound, because of the temperature that was induced by friction in the aircraft fuselage as it plowed through the air. Even in the thin air of 60,000 feet, the aircraft's skin reached temperatures of 120 degrees Celsius, and this made the aircraft fuselage and windows warm to the touch, even from inside the cabin. Now, at supersonic speeds, the air friction over the outside of the aircraft causes the skins to heat up. Mm -hmm. And obviously you cool it, uh, you, you cool the cabin by taking the air conditioning air and doing it through heat exchangers into fuel. So the heat from the cabin is dumped into the fuel. Okay. So gradually during a supersonic flight, the fuel gets warmer and mm -hmm. warmer. Okay. But these are the temperatures. Now, we've, we, you've got to, you've got to uh, control the maximum speed of the aircraft. Um, it's MMO, uh, Mark Maximum Operating. Mm -hmm. And the idea of that is to keep the skin temperatures within the bounds of the materials. Okay. So it's high temperature alum, aluminium alloys that we used. We initially wanted to go quicker. I mean, it's a Mark II airplane. We wanted to go quicker than that. Mm -hmm. But uh, the skin temperatures were going to be more. We actually built an aircraft called the 188, the Type 188, which there's one in Cosford, the RF Cosford Museum, as an experimental test aircraft. And it was made mainly of stainless and titanium. But the weight was so great that we couldn't, 
we couldn't have engines powerful enough right. to, to get it up to the sort yeah, of speeds where we wanted to do. stainless steel in there. Yeah, yeah. It's quite heavy. Yeah, yeah. And so you needed bigger engines, mm -hmm. and, they, and the engines get bigger, so the airplane gets bigger, and it gets mm -hmm. heavier, and you're chasing your tail. Yeah. So we then said, right, we, we ain't, we're not going to go above normally Mach 2. I mean, the aircraft was cleared to Mach 2.2. Mm -hmm. And that gives us, on the front of the aircraft, there's a probe, and that's called the T1 probe. That, that, that measures the temperature. And the temperature there is 127 degrees. That's the first point that pierces the air when mm -hmm. it's going Mark II. And when it's 127 degrees, the front of the aircraft is at 100 degrees, the, the, the nose cone, and the leading edges of the wings, that 105, uh, gradually cools a little bit, but all the wing leading edges at 105. And then it gradually cools a bit as you move towards the fuselage. But as John recounts, the technical heart of Concorde, the innovation that made it work was the jet engine air intake. To safely operate the jet engines, the approaching air had to be slowed down from supersonic to subsonic before it reached the first compressor stage of the engine. To achieve this, Concorde's engineers devised a clever system of inducing shock waves in the air intake using a series of movable ramps. The thing that makes this aeroplane work and stop the Russians' aircraft working was the air intake, the power plant, the integrated power plant, which is the absolute heart of the aeroplane. You have got to have an intake uh, system that allows the air to be slowed down from supersonic air to subsonic air at the engine face. And the only way you can do that is with shock waves. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll just show you these. This, this is a way of of tying it all up and rounding up because... And is that because you don't want basically supersonic air to flow into your compressor and then in, further on into your into your combustion chamber? Do you need the air to be subsonic? For at the engine phase. At the engine phase. Yes. Okay. And um, that is the key to Concorde success. A lot of military aircraft go supersonic, but... Um, only for short periods. Mm -hmm. And they do a quick blast, take off them, up, shoot the enemy down, turn around and come back. Mm -hmm. for, for the Concorde to be successful, it had to be able to cruise for three hours economically. And what we achieved was super cruise. At supersonic cruise, a large amount of the thrust is being generated by the intake. The intake has two moving ramps. When you start off, the engine is the most air it can get. But so those uh, ramps are basically open. They're right up. up. And so, so the cross-sectional area is at a maximum. All yes, the air can come yes. In. And you're taking auxiliary air in through an auxiliary inlet. Through the bottom. Uh, through the yeah. bottom, right, as in takeoff. In supersonic cruise, the ramps, as you go transonic and accelerate, the ramps gradually schedule down. Constricting the airflow. Right. Producing the condi nozzle. Right. And it, what it does, you generate a shock wave off the bottom lip, which reflects between the, the, the bottom of the intake and the ramps. Right. And that shock produces a pressure change as it goes through. You know, PV, PV yep. is a constant. Yeah, so across so, the pressure, across the shock wave, the pressure increases yes. and the density does as well. Yeah, so, so at the engine phase, you've got higher pressure, but you've got lower speed. Mm 
right? PV is constant. Yep. So pressure goes up, velocity, velocity goes, goes down. down. So at the engine phase, you've got air which is going in at less than 500 miles an hour. Right. Now, the Russians copied, we believe that, well, I shouldn't say this, but there's a lot of industrial espionage going on, mm -hmm. and they copied a lot of the structure stuff, but what they couldn't copy was the intake. I was part of a team, Ted Tolbert, who was our boss, he had 40 engineers working on the intake design. It looks very simple, but it's incredibly complicated and sensitive. And you had control, computer controlled with, with 20 cards in it, duplicated, so that if you had an intake failure, it would switch lanes and it was all automatic. But it took a heck of a lot of development to get the intake design right. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get the intake design right, the airplane don't work. Mm -hmm. And that was why the TU-144 only ever flew mailbags around subsonically. Yeah. It, never, it yeah. never flew passengers supersonically anywhere. Mm -hmm. So why is Concorde no longer flying today? That's a very complicated question, but it's probably a combination of the aftershock of 9-11, noise pollution, which forbade Concorde to fly supersonic over continental landmasses, poor economies of scale of the small 16 aircraft fleet and the high maintenance costs and technical updates that were required to keep Concorde operating safely. Uh, a lot of people say it was the it was a Paris crash, but it wasn't the Paris crash that, that stopped it because uh, we found out what the problem was, uh, the course of crash, mm -hmm. and we put modifications in place and um, the aircraft returned to service. But it was going to return to service uh, the crash was in July 2000, mm -hmm. and it was going to return to service in on 9/11, 2001, mm -hmm. on the very on day. On the very day. On the very day, it oh, was wow. due to go back into service. Mm -hmm. That the terrorists flew the, the aircraft into the twin towers, yeah. right? And the thing that that caused the demise of the aircraft was that there were in those twin towers, there were uh, lots of financial people had their offices, stockbrokers mm -hmm. uh, that, that were used to doing financial deals with the City of London. Yeah. So they would do a day trip. Uh, now when the terrorists destroyed the Twin Towers, they took out a third of Concorde's frequent flyers. Wow. Now these are the people that had, because of the, the fare to go from London to New York, New York to London, was £3,000 each way. Mm -hmm. Right? And these financial people, time is money to them, and they had the money to pay for those trips. But when the terrorists took out those Twin Towers, they took out a third of the Concorde frequent flyers passengers. Mm -hmm. So the revenue from the aircraft went down dramatically. Yeah, well, I guess there's also a 30-year period between, let's say, 1976, when the aircraft first goes into service, and then 2003. So it's 27 years, and I guess technology had moved on to a certain extent by then. Do you think that perhaps when that economic rug gets pulled out underneath Concorde because so many of the frequent flyers are, you know, are no, longer, uh, no longer alive to provide custom, does that mean that then perhaps British Airways and Air France are saying, well, look, we have to put all this extra money into Concorde to maybe perhaps update the technology to, today, to today's standards? It's not worth the investment. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. You know that there is um, a classic graph that you can draw, again, income 
against costs. You know, and when the two cross over, the accountants say, it's not economically viable mm -hmm. anymore. There's no sentiment, you know, it's not, oh, this is the only supersonic aircraft in the world. Mm -hmm. There's no sentiment. So finally, what is John's opinion about the future of commercial supersonic flight? What do new startup companies like Boom Supersonic and Spike Aerospace have to get right to have a shot at a viable future? So there is a possibility, but it's the economics. Have you got sufficient people to build to make the production cost of designing, testing and building a new supersonic aircraft with sufficient people that have got the £3,000 or maybe £5,000 mm -hmm. now to pay for a per flight? And that's where the economics fall over. People want cheap flight, and that's where the 747s, the A380s, the A350s come in. So those are the economics that they got to look at. Is it feasible to design, test, and build sufficient aircraft to make those costs, amortize those costs, over the amount of aircraft you can buy and sell? Yeah, yeah. Are there that number of people with five or six thousand pounds per flight that are wanting to spend it regularly, not just once, but regularly to justify the costs. Mm -hmm. So there you have it, John Britton's story of working on Concorde. I'm hoping to have a representative of either Boom Supersonic or Spike Aerospace on the show in the near future to talk about the next chapter of supersonic commercial travel. So do stay tuned for that. If you want to learn more about the topics that John and I discussed, you can find show notes at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. They will also find more information on our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, and the World Leading Materials Technology Conference that Sampi is organizing in Long Beach, California. And just as a quick reminder, if you can spare a minute, I would be super grateful if you could tell me on iTunes how you're liking the show. And with that, thank you very much for listening, and talk to you next time.